Well, today I'm excited because we're launching into a new series in the book of Jonah. And so before we do, I just want to say a few things about Jonah. It's been often quoted that the tragedy about the book of Jonah is that it's a book which has made the means of one of the most sublime revelations of truth in the Old Testament, but it should be known only mostly for its connections with a whale. And so today we're going to launch into this series and I'm excited about it. Why should we study the book of Jonah? Well, for some of us in this room, it's an all too familiar tale, right? We've heard it hundreds of times. So you're thinking, oh, great. How's this going to be anything new that I've not heard? And that might be one good reason to study it. Because I think that sometimes when things become too familiar, they begin to lose their force, they begin to lose their power, and we just kind of skim over it thinking we get it, thinking we got it, but we really don't. We, we have, we're disillusioned by what we know. And then sometimes we need to stop. Smell the roses, study it, and we might be surprised by what we find there. So I'm hoping, to be honest, I'm praying, that you'll be surprised by what we find in this book because I think it's going to blow our minds about learning about the grace of God. Now, to other people, the story of Jonah is a children's story, right? It's a children's story about a man who disobeyed God, and so God sent a fish to eat him. And typically the conclusion of that children's story is, you better obey God or he'll eat you, right? <laughs> Honestly speaking, I've been sifting through children's curriculum all week and a lot of them say that. Obey your parents, obey your teachers, or you'll, you know, God might send a whale or a worm to get you. It's crazy. Now, I'll be honest with you though, you may laugh, but I think I operated most of my 20s under that assumption that God was out to get me because I wasn't obeying him. And he would send whales and, and, and storms and worms to eat my tree, if you know what I'm saying. Like, but for me, it was more like speeding tickets and broken transmissions and broken hearts. And I thought the Lord was trying to get me. Some people will tell you that the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, is about an anti-hero. Jonah is the example of what you should not do, right? So Jonah is bad. Don't be bad, <laughs> And don't name your kids Jonah either, right? Because you don't want your kids to be bad. Jonah's bad. Don't be bad. So you, as you can see, there's a lots of ways you could teach Jonah, lots of ways you can attack it. I want to tell you how I want to attack it for the next six weeks. Here's what I think. We should say this. You need to try harder. You need to be better. And you need to do gooder. And if you don't, God's going to send a giant worm to eat your air conditioner in August. <laughs> Who wants to study that for six weeks? You know I'm kidding, right? Actually, I agree with this quote, that the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah, is one of the most sublime revelations of truth in the Old Testament. And I think what the author means by the word sublime revelation of truth is that the story of Jonah is the gospel in the Old Testament. It's all about Jesus before we ever meet Jesus. It's all about Grace. In fact, many scholars call it the gospel according to Jonah. And one pastor, Tavigian, he says that it is the storied presentation of the gospel. It's not the gospel preached. It's the gospel revealed to us in a narrative, in a story. And so my hope over these next six weeks is that we will dive deep, as you can tell by the title of the series, The Depths of Grace. I want to, I want to experience the deep depths of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. 
God loves you so much, he would, he would move oceans and send whales to show you how much he loves you. And if that's not enough, can I just tell you, he pulled out all the stops and went epic when he sent his son to die on the cross so that he could take your sin and cast it into the depths of the sea. In fact, that's what Micah 7 says, that he would cast our sins into the depths of the sea. So I'm excited. I'm really hoping that we'll be moved by the amazing grace of God in this series. Now, another thing I need to tell you is that the book of Jonah is phenomenally written. It's written, it's, it's masterfully crafted by some author. The author uses every tool of, of literature that he can to make this thing come alive. He uses pun, he uses metaphor, he uses typology and irony. And the Hebrew language is way more powerful than the English language. Like in Hebrew, he can say a word and it can mean 12 things. And it's amazing. And so he's going to use Hebrew words that if we could read it in the original language and understand it, it would it'd be like reading Shakespeare, but then reading it for the hundredth time. You'd really start to understand what he's really saying here. Oh, we're going to see some of that as we study the book. And because it's a masterfully crafted story, all good stories do this. And you know this because we're a movie generation. All good stories have the ability to grab the reader and pull the reader into the story, making that reader believe that he's essentially the main character of that story. If Jonah is the main character of the book of Jonah, then you're Jonah. You're Jonah. In fact, this is still the way Jews teach this book in the synagogues in, in modern day America and the rest of the world. In fact, this blew me away. The holiest day of the year for a Jew, did anyone know what it is? It's Yom, what was that? Yom Kippur. That's right. It's Yom Kippur. I'm just kidding. It's Yom Kippur. I'm from Texas. That's how we always said it. <laughs> or the Day of Atonement. It's a heavy day. They fast. They wear weird clothes. They, 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 it's a really heavy day. And they go to the synagogue. And I didn't know this until recently, but while they're there at the synagogue, they stand up and read the entire book of Jonah out loud. And while it's being read out loud, the congregation will respond throughout it by saying, we are Jonah. Isn't that interesting? You are Jonah. How are you Jonah? Well, you're Jonah because you're a rebel and you are running from God one way or another. Some of us, we often think that non-Christians are the one running from God, right? But if you know me and I know you, don't you, wouldn't you admit we run from God? We run from his grace, we run from his supremacy, we run from his sufficiency. We think we're supreme, we think we're sufficient. We don't think we need grace. Jonah chapter one is like a James Bond movie. All the action happens in the first sequence. You know what I'm talking about? All the action happened right then, and then right at the end of the action, boom, there goes the James Bond credits, and you're left thinking, is Bond dead? Is he gone? What's going on here? And so this, if I were to shoot this film, I'd shoot it like this. Jonah, I see Liam Neeson. I think he'd make you, wouldn't you agree? He's a great Jonah, I think. He's sitting in his room. 
He's tired. I don't know why he's tired. I just think that should be in the movie. He's tired. And all of a sudden, boom, the voice of God comes. That's epic, right? It's huge. God says, go to Nineveh. And Liam gets up, puts on his shoes, and goes the opposite direction. And I hear footsteps, and I hear heavy panting, and I hear music. He's running as fast as he can, right? And then I hear, hear an angry crowd. Hey, watch where you're going. And he runs, and he gets to Joppa. And then I see seedy, rough people, right? Sailors are seedy people. And he gets there, and the captain's like, I ain't going to let you on my ship till you pay up front. So Jonah forks over a bunch of dough. He gets on the ship and immediately he goes down to the bottom of the ship. He's hiding from God. He's hiding from those seedy sailors. The sailors shove off and then immediately this white squall busts out on the ocean or the sea or whatever it is. And it's breaking up the boat. Meanwhile, the, the, the people are so frantic. And if you know anything about sailors, they don't frantic easily, right? They're not scared of much, and, but, but they're scared of this squall. And so they're throwing things off the boat. They're throwing precious cargo off the boat. Maybe even the bourbon, you know, they're throwing it all off the boat. And then all of a sudden they cast lots and they find out it's Jonah. They grab Jonah. They ask him 20 questions. Who are you? Where are you been? Where are you going? Finally, they have no choice. They throw him in the ocean. They throw him in the water. And as soon as they get in the water, silent. Bond credits. And you're sitting there thinking, what just happened to Bond? What's this movie going to be about? Why is Jonah running from God? Silence. So I, I actually narrated this with some little montage behind it because I wanted to make you feel that when we, when we read it out loud. It's from the ESV. You can follow along in your Bible, but let's just, I thought I could do it not as good live, so let's do it here. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the sailors were afraid, and they each cried out to their God. And they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea in order to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And so the captain came and he said to him, What's wrong with you? How can you sleep? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we will not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they, they did, they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then these men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, because I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. But nevertheless, the men tried hard. They rode harder to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea was growing more and more tempestuous against them. So they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, 
have done as you please. And so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Okay, so we're at that silent part and we're asking this question, why is Jonah running from God? That's the question that should be on our minds right now. And it's the question that should be on our minds throughout the whole story, because it is the climactical question that gets answered in the very last few paragraphs of chapter four. In the last few paragraphs, Jonah's going to say, and this is why I ran from you, O God. And so until we get to that, we have to assume, why is he running from God? I'm assuming, why is Jonah running from God? Let, let me spin the question. Why are you running from God? Well, wait a minute, Mike. That's kind of a jump, don't you think? How do you go from Jonah being running from God to automatically assuming that I must be some wicked rebel running from God? Well, I don't mean to offend you, but I'm pretty confident that you are running from God. How am I confident? Because you are Jonah. Remember? We are Jonah. In fact, one author said it well. He said that our hearts are continually inclined to rebel against the Lord our God. So ready to rebel that oh so gladly word, but for a single day we would take from his hands the reign of his supreme rule, imagining that we would manage things far better and direct them far more effectively than God. We all in our own way run from God. It's not just non-Christians. It's not just you know pagans who are running from God, who are living in sin. I've grown up in the church my whole life. Can I just tell you, Christians are, we're excellent at running from God. We've got all kinds of tricky tools up our sleeve on how we can run from God. So the question I want to ask you is why do you run from God? Our hearts are inclined to rebel against God. I think the reason why is because we think we're smarter than him. We think that God's not in it for our best good. We think that God is actually trying to make us miserable. He wants to give us rules. He wants to rob us of our freedom. So we think if we run our own way, we can create our own freedom. But the truth of the matter is, is that when we run from God, we're not running towards freedom. The Bible te teaches us that we're actually running towards slavery, that he's the one who gives. We can't create freedom for ourselves. He only can create freedom for us. The Bible says, if the son has set you free, then you are free indeed. But when we try to create our own freedom, we're always enslaved to something. And I know this for a fact because I've been enslaved to things, haven't you? So why do you run from God? Why are you running from God? What I want to do tonight is, is three things. Ask the, the typical three questions. Why do we run from God? I want to ask that before I ask the second question, which is how do you run from God? What, what techniques do you use? Teach me your techniques. <laughs> So why first, then how? First, let's admit that why. And then, and then thirdly, what, what does running from God, what, what's the effect of it? What, is, what does it do to us? Now, I want to say this. I do believe that everyone in this room in some way, probably once a day in some way, we're running from God. But I also want to say this. I think Missio Day is a church that's a safe place for runners. Not that we're going to hide you from God, but that I think that we're going to be honest about the fact that we're, we're, we tend to rebel against his sufficiency and his supremacy and, and his grace that he's giving us. And we're, I hope that we're honest about that. I, I'm going to be honest about that. And I think, 
I'm going to force you to be honest about that for the next six weeks at least. So to begin, let's just ask this question in our table. Why do you think people, whether Christians or not, run from God? So we got three minutes to discuss this question. At the end of those three minutes, I'll uh, try to engage conversation. You know, in summary, we run from God because we believe that he um, isn't for our best interests, that we are for our best interests, and we can um, do things better. We can manage things a little better. We run from God because we think that he's out to get us in some way. He's out to make us miserable until we obey him. And I don't know if I said this already, but I, I think I spent most of my 20s believing that's how God operated. He was trying to get me. I, I remember sometimes in my 20s where I would literally say to God, you know what, God, I know this is bad, but I'm going to do it anyway because I want to. And maybe I just need to learn the hard way. And, and, and I said that a lot to him. And, and yeah, I was, yeah, I was rebelling. I was running from God, but I was still talking to him. And, and, and it, it encouraged me about in my 30s when I heard Rich Mullins, someone I used to idolize as a kid, who say that he did the same thing, that in his 20s, he would literally say to God, I'm confessing my sin before I do it. So if you could, just blink, you know, just close your eyes because I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to do this. We also run from God because we believed the lie. We believe the lie that God doesn't love us as much as he loves himself. And that is an awful lie. And so we run all the time from God, all the time. Now that we know, and now that we're being honest about why we run, let's talk about how we run because we're good at this. Let's look at how Jonah ran, for instance. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to, the, to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So sometimes when we run, we run to Tarshish. What does that mean? Well, Tarshish was east and Nineveh was west. So God said, go west. And Jonah said, I'm going to go east, young man. <laughs> and, and not only was it the opposite direction, but it was 2,000 miles the opposite direction. Now, if, if, you're, if you're Hebrew wearing sandals in that day, you, you need to know that 2,000 miles was the ends of the earth. It's Tarshish's modern day Spain. And so for people in this time period, it literally was the ends of the world. If you want to get away from the presence of the Lord, maybe you can do it if you go to the ends of the world, right? He was running from where? The presence of the Lord. It says it twice in the first part of the verse in verse three, and then the last part of the verse of verse three. You could bet your bottom dollar that the masterful um, literary craftsman of this story wants you to know Jonah was attempting to get away from the presence of the omnipresent God. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? How do you get away from the presence of the God who's always and everywhere present? Well, maybe if you get 2,000 miles out of Dodge, you can do it. Interestingly enough, if you get on a boat to go to Tarshish, it would take you one year to travel by sea to get to Tarshish. Can you believe that? So Jonah paid a heavy fare to get on this boat, and he's basically saying to God, I'm getting out of Dodge, I'm going on my own way, and I'm going to be gone at least two years, right? If I, if I change my mind when I get there, it's going to take me another year to get back, and so God, you're going to have to figure out someone else to go, right? Not me, because I'm going to be gone for two and a half years. So sometimes the way we run from God is we get as far away from him as possible by doing every possible thing that we know we shouldn't do. Can I get an amen to that? We just rebel. We just live in sin. We just eat and drink and sleep, whatever. You know, you, you, you add it to, to what I'm trying to say. You, you know how you do it. We just sin and run from him. 
Another way, I think, that we run from God is we avoid him. This, this is a good way, I think. It's kind of like God gave Jonah a fish and Jonah gave God the hand. <laughs> Don't talk to me. I'm not listening to you. You're not, you're not here. Right, I'm ignoring you. <laughs> How do you ignore God? Well, I do it all the time. We're good at this. One way we do it is we pretend that he's not here. Right? We pretend that he doesn't know what's going on. We laughed at Jonah right, for trying to escape the presence of the omnipresent God, but you and I do it every day. We pretend that he's not omnipresent, that he's not in this room, that he doesn't see what I'm doing. He doesn't see me feeding it. right? He doesn't see me acting the way. No one sees what I'm doing right now. I'm in private. No, God sees. You're not hiding from the presence of the Lord. So we, get, we, we do things like we busy ourselves. We, we, we add a lot of noise. Americans are, I think, great at this. We're so busy, we're just too busy to see what God wants, too busy to hear what God wants. Lord, I'm real busy trying to fix this stuff in my life. Once I get this stuff organized, then I'll check in on you, make sure we're cool, right? And, and, and we're cool, right? Cool, good. Well, you know what? I'm doing this over here. I'm real busy. Could use your help, by the way, but you know, this is where I'm going, okay? Thank you, Lord. That's typically the way we do it. And, and I honestly think that's why the author opens this book in this breakneck pace with all this frenzy and the ship and the, the storm. And, and then he throws Jonah in the water. Silence. And Jonah has to lay in the belly of a slimy fish for three days and three nights in complete silence. No iPod. No movies, no book to read. No, he wasn't Pinocchio, you know, with the candle and the book, right? He's just lying there in this fish for three days and three nights in utter silence. I mean, maybe there's whale song, I don't know, but, but all he's got is to deal with himself. I don't know about you, but I couldn't stand that. I, I don't like silence. Now, I like me some peace and quiet, that's true, but I don't like silence. And to be cooped up with myself for three days and three nights, I think would drive me crazy. I think it would drive you crazy too. I had a friend once who did Outward Bound. Have you heard of Outward Bound? It's in college, you go on this physical camping, hiking trip. And she said the hardest part was not the physical part of climbing the mountain and you know, carrying your backpack, but it was the three days that they put you by yourself with your own tent and nothing but a journal to write in. Three days you have to hear your own thoughts loud and clear. None of us want that. But what I think is interesting is that we probably all need it. We probably all need this little sabbatical where we say, okay, God, I'm going to let it all out, and I'm just going to get real with you, and I'm going to let you control. I'm going to let you direct. So we run away from God by running into sin, or we run away from God by, by, by just avoiding him, by just ignoring him. So how do you do it? You've got your own tricks, right? You've got your own techniques. There's lots of ways. We can pretend to be holy, right? We can pretend to be doing the right thing when we're really not doing the right thing at all. This is all in the New Testament, by the way, and it's what we'll cover next week, the difference between Jonah and Nineveh, right? How they are running from God. So I've, I've just taken 10 seconds from you. I'm sorry. What techniques do you typically use to run from God? Let's discuss that. What does running from God really do to us in the end, in the long run? And again... If we look at this, these first three verses, the author, because he's so powerful in the way he writes this, he wants you to know exactly what you do. And here's what you do. When you run from God and you say, God, you're not for my freedom. I'm for my freedom. And you run for your own freedom. Instead of running towards freedom, you always end up running towards slavery. And you always end up 
T tell me if you're tracking with me. Tell me if you're on the same page, if you resonate with this. You always end up self-destructing. When I run from God, I say, mm, I'm going to do my own thing. And I do those things that I know are the worst for me. I just, you know, it's like I had a bad day, you eat a whole cake. You know what I mean? One time I ate a whole <laughs> roasted chicken, you know, can I believe I did that? <laughs> and that's just a really lame example. You know what I mean? I could get real personal if I tell you really the things that I've done when I run from God and you just self-destruct, self-implode. And the author of Jonah wants you to see this. When, when Jonah runs from God... He says four times in this short little verse that he goes down. You may have heard this before. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. He goes down into the bottom of the ship, and he goes down to sleep, and it's not on accident. I had to um, translate this in seminary from Hebrew to English, and it's real clear. If you speak Hebrew, whoa, he's hitting us with a lot of downness. You know, this is a downer, you know? <laughs> We're going down, and so when we run from God, it's a spiraling downward, sinking, sinking, sinking until we hit the bottom. And, and the word for deep sleep or heavy sleep or fast asleep, in the Hebrew it connotes this deep hypnotic kind of a sleep. And it would have had to have been, right? There's a white squall tearing up the ship and he's asleep. And the captain comes down and says, what in tarnations is wrong with you? How in the heck can you be sleeping? Literally, that's what he says. It's in the Hebrew. <laughs> I'm being serious. Like yeah. <laughs> and so he's deep in sleep. So I want you to hear this. When we run from God and we're sinking downward, you may not even know it. Emily said this earlier. You may not even know it because you're asleep. You've been numbed by it all. You, you've run so much, so far from God. It's such a habit for you that you don't even feel the sinking. You're numbed to it. In, in fact, one pastor calls it the drift. I like the way he says, he says beware the drift. And the drift is this. You don't wake up one morning, you know, wrapped in the grace and the mercy of your Lord Jesus Christ in the morning, and then that night sleeping in bed with some other man's wife. You know what I mean? You don't commit adultery overnight. This is a thing that you drift into, and you don't even see it coming because you're numb. You're, you're in a hypnotic sleep. These things just happen slowly, and you sink, and you sink, and you sink until you hit the bottom, and then you're like, what happened? I don't know. I thought I had control of this thing. No. And I think what God does is he lets the bottom fall out on us so that we fall right into the deep ocean of his grace, the depths of his mercy and his love. He swallows us in it. He saturates us in it so that then only that can break that numbness from us. <gasps> Whoa, this is the amazing grace that people sing about. Wow, this is how much God loves me. Despite the fact that I've been asleep, that I've been running, that I've been sinking, eventually he has to get me to a place where he says, I want you to know my love for you. That's the only thing that will break our numbness. So I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Let me give you the bad news first. The bad news is that you're a runner. We're all naturally born to run. It started in the garden. We're running from God, always. And next week, we'll talk more about the different ways Christians and non-Christians run from God. And you can run from God in the church. You can hide from him there. I've done it. But the good news is this, and this is really good news. It doesn't matter how far or how frequently, for that matter, that you've run. He is hot on your heels. 
God is chasing after your soul. He loves you so much. You could turn around and he's right there. He's closer than you think. He's omnipresent. I think most of us in this room, most all people in the world, know that God is hot on our heels. Know that he's pursuing us. But we don't think that he's pursuing us with a, with a desperate love. We think he's pursuing us to get us. To make us miserable. To make us obey. I, I love what one poet said. He's the hound of heaven. God's the hound of heaven. He's chasing us down to show us his great love and his great mercy. But we keep running because we think he's out to get us. And I told you in my 20s, I, I thought this. And, and, and if I can be honest with you, I, I still do. I still think he's trying to get me. He's trying to make my life miserable. And, and when, when I was running from God the most, I'll never forget the day I bought this book. It's called Abba's Child by Brendan Manning. I got this at a bookstore. I was about 25. I went to a straight from the bookstore to a public coffee house, and I sat down to read the first chapter before I went to church to see if there were any cute girls at the singles Bible study. I couldn't even, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what I mean by hiding in the church. I was going to church and I knew I was running from God. And I, I read three pages into this book and these huge tears started running down my face and I, I couldn't stop them. I couldn't control them. I honestly, it was embarrassing because there were people looking at me. And I honestly think it was 10 years worth of tears because I hadn't cried in a long time. In fact, I had been really worried about that. Like maybe because I've been running from God for so long, my heart is so cold. My heart is so hard. Maybe I'm lost. Maybe I have no feelings because I haven't cried at all in like 10 years. And then all of a sudden from this three pages of this book, I'm just, they had to mop the floor up after I left. So I skipped church that night and I went home and made a steak and I read the rest of this book and I prayed to God. It was the most spiritual day of my life. I want to read these three story, three pages to you because it, it affected me and I, I want it to affect you. The title of this chapter is called Come Out of Hiding. And he opens his book with this famous short story called The Turkey by Flannery O'Connor. So I'm going to read about two or three pages. I hope the story itself will keep you awake. In Flannery O'Connor's short story, The Turkey, the anti-hero and principal protagonist is a little boy named Ruler. He has a poor self-image because nothing he turns his hand to seems to work. At night in bed, he overhears his parents analyzing him. Ruler's an unusual one, his father says. Why does he always play by himself? And his mother answers, how am I to know? One day in the woods, Ruler spots a wild and wounded turkey, and he sets off in hot pursuit. Oh, if, if only I could catch it, he cries. He will catch it, even if he has to run it out of state. He sees himself triumphantly marching through the front door in the house with a turkey slung over his shoulder and the whole family screaming, oh, look at Ruler with that wild turkey. Ruler, where'd you get that turkey? Oh, I caught it in the woods. Maybe you'd like me to catch you one sometime. But then this thought flashes across his mind. God will probably make me chase that dang turkey all afternoon for nothing. And he knows he shouldn't think that way about God, but he can't help it. That's just the way he feels. And if that's the way he feels, is, is that bad? He wonders, maybe he is unusual. 
Well, ruler finally captures the turkey, and, and when he rolls it over, dead, when it rolls over dead from a previous gunshot wound, he hoists it on his shoulders and he begins his messianic march back through the center of town. He remembers the things he had thought before about God, and, and they were pretty bad, he guesses, and he figures God must have stopped me before it's too late. So he thought, I should be very thankful. So thank you, God, he says. Much obliged to you. This turkey must weigh 10 pounds. You've been mighty generous. Maybe getting the turkey was a sign. Maybe he wants me to be a preacher. He wants to do something for God, but he doesn't know what to do. And if, and if anybody were playing the accordion in the street today, he would give them his dime. It's the only dime he has, but he would give it to him anyway. These two men approached and whistled at the turkey. They yell at some other men on the corner and say, hey, how much do you think it weighs, they ask. At least 10 pounds, ruler answers. How long did you chase it? About an hour, says ruler. That's really amazing. You must be very tired. No, but I got to go, ruler replies. I'm in a hurry, and he cannot wait to get home. Ruler notices a group of country boys shuffling behind him, and he turns around and he asks very generously, y'all want to see this turkey? And they stare at him. Where'd you get that turkey? I found it in the woods. I chased it dead. See, it's been shot under its wing. Let me see it, one of the boys says. And ruler hands him the turkey, and the turkey's head flies into ruler's face as the country boy slings it up over his shoulder and runs. And the others turn with him and saunter away. And they are a quarter of a mile away before ruler even moves, and finally they're so far he can't even see him. So he creeps towards home. He walks for a bit, and then, noticing it's dark, suddenly he begins to run. And he ran faster and faster, and as he turned up the road to his house, his heart was running as fast as his leg, and he was certain that something awful was tearing behind him with its arms rigid and its fingers ready to clutch. And then Brennan adds to that, in ruler, many of us Christians stand revealed, naked, and exposed. Our God, it seems to us, is one who benevolently gives turkeys and then capriciously takes them away. When he gives them, it signals his interest in and pleasure with us. And so we feel close to God and we're spurred to generosity. And when he takes them away, it signals his displeasure and his rejection. And we feel cast off by God. He is fickle, unpredictable, whimsical. He builds us up only to let us down. He remembers our past sins and retaliates by snatching the turkeys of health, wealth, and inner peace, and etc. And so we unwittingly project onto God our own attitudes and feelings about ourselves. So we run from God because we don't like ourselves. And we think that He doesn't like us either until. Things go our way, and then we think he likes us again. And then he, like you said earlier, are you in it for me, or are you in it for you, God? Is this a test? I don't trust you, God. I think you're tricking me again. Brenham ends this chapter with this quote. He says, God calls us to stop hiding and come openly to him. God is the father who ran to his prodigal son when he came limping home. God weeps over us when shame and self-hatred immobilizes us. Yet as soon as we lose our nerves about ourselves, we take cover. Adam and Eve hid, and we all, in one way or another, have used Adam and Eve as role models. Why? Because we don't like what we see. 
it is uncomfortable, intolerable even, to confront our true selves. We run from God because we don't like ourselves, and we think he doesn't like us either. But can I tell you this? I think he does love you. I think he loves you with a ferocious kind of love that makes us sometimes not trust him. He loves us so much. The Bible says that you're the apple of his eye. You're a treasure. You're a pearl of great price. The Bible also says that God shows us his love. He demonstrates his love for us in that while we were living in sin, while we were running from him, he sent his son to die for our sin, that he may bundle up that sin and shove it deep into the seas. That's how much he loves us. God loves us so much that he sent his son, his only son. He didn't just send his son, he gave his son to show us just how much he loves us. It's fascinating to me that Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so I, Jesus says, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he says, you know, the people of Nineveh, they're going to rise up one of these days and judge this generation because when Jonah preached to them, they repented. He says, but look at me. Someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, I'm greater than Jonah. Let me tell you why Jesus is greater than Jonah. When Jonah was told what to do, he ran from God. And when Jesus was told what to do, he ran towards God's will. He even said, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will. When Jonah, out of bitterness, preached the gospel, Jesus, the Bible says, out of the joy set before him, endured the cross. When Jonah ran for his own self-preservation, Jesus ran for his own self-sacrifice to give his life that we may have eternal life. Jesus is the greater Jonah. And he loves you so much. The trick is, you don't love yourself enough to let him love you. And so we self-destruct. If you're here tonight and you know that you're running, you know that you've been running from God, or if you even sense just a little bit that you've been slipping into the drift, even though you're numb, if you sense it, can I just urge you, call out to God. That's what the sailors will do tomorrow or next week. That's what Jonah will do from the fish. That's what the Ninevites will do in chapter 3. You just need to call out to the one who loves you. The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. And, and I, and I want to say this. All you really have to do is turn around. He's, the, he's right there. He's right on your heels. He's the hound of heaven. He's closer than you think. And if you turn around, you'll see he's there with arms wide open to embrace you with his strong arms of grace and mercy and love that flows deep, deep. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we, we thank you. Um, how can we thank you for your grace when we don't even get it? 
How can we thank you and worship you for your love and your mercy when we frequently and oftenly run from it? But yet we still try, and we should. We gather here tonight to worship you, to praise you, to, to take communion, to partake of the, the body and the blood of Christ, to remember just how much you love us, that you would send your son to pay the price of our sinful nature. And I pray, Lord, that as we worship you the rest of this evening, as we partake of communion, that you would do a work on all of our hearts, because I need this, uh, that, that you would work on this rebellious heart of mine, that we would stop running from you, that we would trust you. You do love us. How do I forget that? And I ask, Lord, that as we study this, this text for the next six weeks, that it will change our lives as we experience the depths of your grace. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. A a amen. I, I want to tell you that we, we take communion every week here.